It's always a fun thing at Christmas to see all the Christmas lights. Uh, as soon as you get past Thanksgiving, you begin to see all the Christmas lights coming in. You, you begin to see people um, opening up their garage doors and getting out the boxes and things and ladders and all kinds of stuff that, that they begin to get out. In December, when you're driving down a dark street at night, it's always a pleasant surprise to come upon a house that has a lot of Christmas lights. Now, I'm for one that, one that understands how much work it is. It, it's a lot of work to get out there and put up the lights and just to get the, getting the ladders and the boxes and, the, and those little white clips that you have to get and, you know, shoving those underneath the, the shingles. And it's just, it's just a lot of work just getting the lights untangled, putting them up, and then turning them on. One of the famous things in our culture from the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years of, uh, you know, d decking out a house with a bunch of lights is, is uh, Clark Griswold's house. Remember when he, you know, had the lights? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a picture of that right here. Yeah, this was, this was Clark's house, you know, and, um, and 250 strands of lights, right? 250 strands of lights, and I don't know how many lights were on each strand, but anyways, that was a, that was a big, big deal. But anyways, I went out on the internet and I looked for other houses that were, have been decked out like with unbelievable lights. And I found this uh, particular uh, house in uh, Temecula, California, actually, which is a town that I know actually very well. I've actually spent quite a bit of time in Temecula. Uh, Calvary Chapel Bible College is in a neighboring town uh, called Marietta Hot Springs. But anyways, I just thought that was unbelievable. I don't know how long this guy must have spent, but evidently I think he won the award for the, you know, the Temecula City uh, Christmas Lights contest. Amen. Amen. It's, it's unbelievable to see all the lights and all the things, and, and it's, a, it's, it's, it's a whole situation, isn't it? It's fun to see. It's nice to see in the nighttime of December those Christmas lights penetrating the darkness. Amen? It's nice to see the, the lights penetrating the darkness. And what it reminds me of is the promise of Christmas light. It's the promise of Christmas light to penetrate our darkness whenever this Christmas light is welcomed into our lives. And so tonight I want to take you to Israel about 800 years before the birth of Christ. I want to take you to a time when Isaiah the prophet was there and he was delivering a mighty message to the people of Israel 800 years before Jesus was born. And he delivers a message about a light coming upon Israel. Uh, a light coming into the darkness that had settled in over the people of Israel. And it's a promise of light that would overcome the darkness. Just as these Christmas lights overcome the physical darkness, there was a light that was promised that was coming into the world that would overcome the darkness. And so I want to talk to you tonight about Christmas light. If you're taking notes, I've got a couple points here tonight. The first one is this, Christmas light will lift the gloom of darkness. Amen? Christmas light will lift the gloom of darkness. Well, let's pick it up in Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 right now. It says this, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward the more heavily oppressed, the more heavily oppressed her, 
by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, on them a light has shined. You see, this passage comes uh, to tell them that there was coming a time when there would be a darkness that would come upon Israel. There, there would be a time that would be darkness coming upon them. And th- that darkness would be, uh, bring a tremendous darkness and gloom would settle in on them. And uh, Israel would experience a tremendous darkness. And it was, why would they experience this darkness? Well, it was the personal sins of the people and it was the national sins of the nation that had brought God's repeated offers of reconciliation. If you read the Old Testament, Israel's constantly being brought back into relationship and they uh, go back out to serve other gods and to do all this crazy stuff. And, And God is just constantly just reaching out to them and he's tried to bring these repeated offers of reconciliation. But the people had rejected God time and time again. They had disobeyed God's law and they had turned their love and their worship to the false gods of their neighbor nations. And, and this sin brought a tremendous darkness. And this is what sin does. It's what sin first did to Adam and Eve. I believe Adam and Eve were, were created with light suits. They, were, they had the kabod, the glory of God on them. And, and when, that was, when they had sinned against God, it was gone. And they knew they were naked and they hid in the garden. And I think that first sin brought that initial darkness upon them. And it, and it brought darkness into the lives of the people of Israel. And it brings darkness into our lives as well. That's what darkness does. Sin brings darkness. But in this prophetic passage in the book of Isaiah, God promises to bring his light to them once again. He promises to bring them a light that will bring them out of darkness. Now, these verses talk about an area, a specific geographic area of Israel uh, that had borne the brunt of the darkness of sin. A particular area of Israel called the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. These were the areas of Israel in the northern portion of the land. And if you're familiar at all with the geography of Israel, there's the, the, the land that was given to the people of Israel was divided up according to the 12 tribes. And these two tribes, the, the people of Zebulun and Naphtali, were given the land around in the northern part of the nation of Israel, specifically in and around the Sea of Galilee. And this was the reason why the, the prophet is specifically naming these two areas is because this, this area of the country was the, the area that bore the brunt of the, the punishment and the, the assault of the Assyrians that came in and drove the people out because of their darkness, because of their sin that was in their lives. And so he's talking about this area that had borne the brunt of darkness and the people were sitting in a darkness. But he says, you know what? There's going to be these people that sat in the darkness, this area of Zebulun and Naphtali, this area of Galilee around the sea to the Jordan and to the sea. They, they, although they sit in darkness, a great light is going to come upon them. They're going to be the ones that are going to first see the love and the light of Jesus Christ in his ministry. And this is exactly what happened. Why? Because although Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he grew up in Nazareth. And when he left his home in Nazareth, 
Nazareth and working with his father as a carpenter, he went and he began his ministry. And where did he start? He moved to Capernaum, which is right by there in those areas around Zebulun and Naphtali. And so that area of the country of Israel that had borne the brunt and the punishment of the darkness that had been a result of their sin was the very area that was the one that saw the light of Jesus Christ and the ministry that he brought. And so this would be that light that would lift the gloom of their darkness. And a light will come upon you if the Lord, if you allow the Lord to come and shine his light on your darkness, it will lift the gloom, whatever gloom that might be happening in your life, whatever gloom that you might be experiencing right now, it's the light of Jesus Christ that will come and shine on your darkness. And although you sat in darkness, you will see a great light and the gloom of that darkness will just be lifted. And this is exactly, amen. And did you know that the gospel writer Matthew uh, put two and two together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? And this is what he says to us in Matthew 4, verses 13. He says this, And leaving Nazareth, speaking of Jesus, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. And if you continue reading in that chapter, the next verse He quotes these two verses of Isaiah chapter 9 and puts two and two together and says, look, this is exactly what Jesus did. He came to this area that bore the brunt of the darkness and he came to be the light of the world and to lift the gloom of that darkness that had set in. Amen? And so the point is this. Christmas light will lift the gloom of darkness. The light of Jesus will lift the gloom of darkness. God will shine his light on our darkness and his light will lift the gloom of our darkness. Look to the light of Jesus this Christmas. I know there's going to be a lot going on. There's going to be Christmas parties and Christmas concerts and Christmas presents and Christmas candies and cookies and, and we're, you know, we're all going to have to join the gym and, 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 and uh, go see Sandy and so she can make us buff and everything and you know, so we can you know, welcome to the gun show you know, and, and, and all that good stuff. But don't miss this opportunity this Christmas to let the light of Jesus shine on your darkness and lift the gloom, whatever it is that's happening in your life. Let his light shine upon your face and lift up your countenance, his countenance upon you. Amen. Now, point number two tonight. First one is Christmas light will lift the gloom of darkness. Second one is this Christmas light will bring unspeakable joy. Let's continue on in our passage in Isaiah chapter 9. It says this in verse 3 You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden. And the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel for fire. Because of the darkness of their sin and the resulting darkness of their oppression from the Assyrians, Israel had suffered serious defeat. Serious, egregious defeat. They had experienced. They were scattered. They were defeated. They experienced an unbelievable defeat. Now there's one thing that defeat does. It brings sadness. 
Defeat brings sadness. Don't let, don't, let, don't let anybody tell you any differently. No, it ain't fun to win. No, it's not. It brings sadness. From my earliest memories, I can recall just utter and devastating sad, sadness when I was on the losing team. I remember one time when I was in Little League Baseball, and I, we got all the way to the city championship on this one particular year, and we had had a great year, and in the game that was the city championship, we lost the game. We lost the game, and I know what it's like to lose the city championship. But let me tell you, I also know what it's like to win the city championship, amen? Because the year before, our team had won the Little League championship in the city of Naperville, Illinois. We were 14-0. and We played the final game under the lights with concrete dugouts and the whole thing. This was like 1982, okay? And it was an awesome, awesome, awesome time. And yours truly got the winning hit. A walk-off. A walk-off. It was a walk-off. Yeah, yeah. You kids, you sons of mine, you, you remember this. I'm telling you, I had a walk-off. I, I will never walk it off in a, in a major league game or in the World Series or the All-Star game, but I walked it off in the city championship in Naperville, Illinois. So I know what it's like to be on the losing side, and I know what it's like to be on the winning side. And let me tell you, it is devastating to be on the losing side. Do you remember back in the 70s, ABC had a show on Saturdays, I believe, and it was called ABC, ABC's Wide World of Sports. You remember this show? And when it would come on, it came on usually like if you were sitting there watching cartoons for like six hours and eating like your 14th bowl of like Captain Crunch. Then you remember that ABC's Wild World of Sports would come on, and they had this whole intro that would happen, and you remember the announcer that would say, to experience the agony of defeat, the thrill of victory, and the agony of defeat. And the skier just tumbles over the ski jump thing, and it's just like you're going, oh, that looks so bad. You know, the agony of defeat. Yeah, that guy has a name. At one point, I actually looked up his whole story. You could actually Google him and find out, like, you know, it was a bad, yeah. He, he, he went down as the guy that, like, was the ski jump guy that, you know, is the, is the epitome of the agony of defeat. Yeah, the agony of defeat. This is exactly what Israel experienced. Because of their sin, because of the darkness that had come in, because of the chastisement of the Father that had been brought in, and, and because of their sin and their separation from God, and the fact that He had allowed the Assyrians to come in and, and just batter them. But what this text says is that when this light was going to come back to Israel and shine on their darkness and lift their gloom, not only was this light going to lift their gloom, but it was going to bring joy back into the land. Although they had experienced the agony of defeat, they were going to experience the thrill of the victory of the Lord. The thrill of the victory of the Lord. The joy of the Lord. Of salvation. Of overcoming sin and darkness and everything. He says this in verse 3. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy and they rejoice before you. Now I want you to read those verses and I want you to see this. The thrill of victory. 
The joy of the Lord, the joy of salvation and knowing God. Now, how the prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describes this joy that Israel was going to experience because their Messiah was going to come and shine on their darkness, he uses two analogies. The first analogy is the thrill that the farmer experiences when the harvest comes in, the joy of the harvest. You see that they rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest. The joy of the harvest. Any, anybody who's ever been a farmer or worked on a farm or lived on a farm, anybody here? No, we're city folk. Amen. City, a bunch of city slickers here. Now, there was once a time, that, okay, that one person, one person here of all these people, one person that lived on a farm, experienced two, do we have any more? Two, three, four, okay. There was a time probably years ago when you would ask that question in this nation and half the crowd would lift their hands or, or more than half. But we've become a, a city slicker uh, nation. But anyways, if you've ever been around uh, a farm or anything like that, you know that farmers, they do get to experience something. It's called the joy of the harvest. If you've ever had a... Okay, let me back up. You've nev you never worked on a farm, but how many had a little garden in your backyard? Raise your hand. Okay, I got some more takers on that one. Okay, so you had a little garden in your back. And you know what it's like to go out there and check on stuff and see the little green peppers growing or maybe you had a little pumpkin patch in the backyard or whatever. So you know what it's like when that thing grows up and grows up and grows up and it finally gets big and you're like, you know what, we're going to harvest this thing and you're able to, to experience the joy of the harvest. Like this guy, right? Yeah, this guy knows what it's like to experience the joy of harvest. Look at it. He's proud of that. Why is he proud? Because he planted that pumpkin patch. Amen? And he's getting to experience the joy of the harvest. Now look at this woman. She knows what it's like to experience the joy of the harvest. And this is exactly what Jesus, this is what God is saying. You're going to be so overcome with joy. You're going to have salvation. You're going to, you're, he's going to be multiplied in joy in your life. And you're going to know what it is. And it's going to be comparable to the joy of the harvest. The joy of the harvest. Amen. Now the second analogy he uses is the thrill of the victory of the soldier. The thrill of the victory of the soldier. The, I'll call it the joy of victory. The joy of victory. Now look at it, verse uh, 3. He says, As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. You know, as as Soldiers, the joy that they experience when they have a victory on the battlefield, when they accomplish the task that they have been called to, to do on the battlefield, and they get to come home. Now, I got a couple pictures of some people that might know a little bit about the joy of victory. Yeah, look at these guys. Look at these guys. The joy of victory. This is what it's like. The joy of victory. And how about this? Next one. Yeah. The joy of victory, of returning home, saying, yeah, we were victorious. We were victorious. Now, at the end of verse 4 there, we're told that this is likened to the victory that Israel had enjoyed back in their history at a place called Midian. 
Look at that verse 4. It says, as in the day of Midian. What is this talking about? What this is talking about is the rousing victory that God had given Israel over the Midianites under the leadership of a man named Gideon. If you know the story, you can find it in the book of Judges in chapters 6, 7, and 8. So if you want to write that down, and you can have a little bedtime story and read that story. It's a great, great story. The story of Gideon and Israel's victory over Midian. The Midianites were oppressing the people of Israel. They had just become a thorn in the side of the people of God, of the people of the Lord. And so Gideon, here's what he does. He rounds up 32,000 men. He rounds up 32,000 men, and he's going to go to war against Midian. He's going to, he, we've got to go take these guys out. We're going to take them out. And the Lord speaks to Midian, and he says, okay, you're going to go do it, but you're not taking 32,000 men. And the Lord gives Gideon a couple of drills involving drinking water out of the river. And with these couple of drills, God dwindles Gideon's army from 32,000 all the way down to 300. 300. 300, man. God tells Gideon, not, yeah, yeah, 300, this is, a, this is a picture from a movie that you may be familiar with. It's, three, it's called 300 that is about the wars of the Spartans and uh, Cyrus's wars with the Spartans. Years before that 300, there was Gideon's 300. Amen? Many, many hundreds of years before that, probably about a good two to 300, if I know my history correctly. And so God tells Gideon, no, you're not going out with 32,000. You're going to go with 300. Why? Because he tells Gideon, he says, if you go down there with 32,000 and you get a victory, Israel's going to come back and they're going to say, hey, look, we're not too shabby. You know, we got a decent army. We're pretty good. And God says, no, I don't want you coming back thinking you're great and that you can trust your, in your own might and trust in your own power and your own selves. I want you to know that it's me that has delivered you from the hands of the Midianites. And so I'm going to dwindle that 32,000 army. I'm going to dwindle it right down to 300. And did you know that God gave them the victory in that battle with that 300 men army? So Israel enjoys an incredible victory over the Midianites with only 300. And the lesson for Israel is that victory and her security is in the Lord and no one else. And this is seen for you and I, the same principle that God wants to teach us. In the reality of how God's light first came to us, a child was born in Bethlehem. What's the next verse? Turn the page. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The third point tonight is this. Christmas light is a person, and his name 
is Jesus. Amen? Christmas light is a person, and his name is Jesus. And just as Israel had learned at the victory over Midian that it was the Lord that gave her victory and security, God chooses to enter human history as a newborn child. The Christmas light that will lift the gloom of your darkness and give you joy unspeakable is none other than Jesus, the Messiah. Now we see some important information about the person of Jesus here in verse 6. This is some foundational and important theological uh, information about the person of Jesus, the Messiah, right here in Isaiah 9, verse 6. You say, oh yeah, yeah. Tells us a little bit about this person. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. The child is born. You see, Jesus the Messiah, the light of the world, was born as a child. He was born in Bethlehem, just as the prophet Micah had predicted in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. The wording is this here in Isaiah 9, 6. A child is born. Why does the Holy Spirit want us to know that? A child is born tells us that Jesus came into this world as a man. A child is born. A person. A human being, a man, a child was born. And this is exactly what... The Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 2 of Philippians, beginning at verse 5, it says this, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. A child was born. He came as a man. Why did we need a child to be born? Why did we need a man? Messiah, a human being. He came as a man to be a perfect man. He came as a man to be the perfect man, the perfect sacrifice, a lamb without blemish. A, a lamb without spot or blemish. He was a perfect lamb. He was a man just like the first Adam, but without sin. You see, the first Adam sinned. He disobeyed God. Sin entered his life, darkness entered his life, death entered his life. But Jesus came into this world as a man, as a child, grew to be a man, to be the perfect man. To be the perfect sin sacrifice for you and me. As the second Adam, he would be perfect. Now the wording is this, a child is born, but it doesn't stop there, amen? A child is born, but look at the next phrase, it says, a son is given. A son is given. The wording a son is given describes Jesus' divinity. A child is born describes his humanity. A son is given describes his divinity. You see, a man is born, but God gave his only begotten son. Amen? A child is born, a son is given. Why? Because Jesus is the eternal, pre-existent second person of the Godhead. He may have been born in Bethlehem on a certain night, but he had always been the Son. He had always been the Son. So 
let's put the whole package together. What did we need in a Messiah? What did the world need in a Messiah? We needed a man who was perfect to be the perfect sacrifice, but we needed it to be infinitely powerful in its scope. We needed it to be infinitely powerful enough to save anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord. So what did we need? We needed a God-man. Amen? See, the movies today are filled with this idea of a God-man. But there's never been one like this one. A God-man. The eternal son and a man born in Bethlehem. You see, the God-man equals this. A God-man equals a child is born, a son is given. This God-man, Jesus, he's the light of the world. Amen? He's the light of Christmas. This Christmas light that would lift the gloom of your darkness. There are many people this, this Christmas season that will go through this entire Christmas and they won't see a sparkle in a light. They won't see the light glisten off of a package or a bow. The gloom of darkness has settled in. And God wants to interrupt that darkness. He wants to be the light, not only of the world, but in your world. Amen? So John put it this way in his gospel in the first chapter. John chapter 1, verse 9. The true light, which gives light to every man, coming into the world. You want to know what Christmas is all about? Well, there's two surefire locations you can get it. One is Linus, he'll tell you. <laughs> Linus, he's never let us down for the last 40, 50 years. Amen? He keeps on preaching it every year. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And this word, this word, that a light came into the world. A light came into the world to shine on man's darkness. And if you let him, if you let him. Now here's the message of Christmas, and I'll do my best job. The light of the world came into the world as a child. But the sun was given, and his light can lift the gloom of your darkness and give you unspeakable joy if you will receive the light of Jesus Christ into your life. And so the exhortation for us tonight is to receive the light. Amen? to receive the greatest gift that has ever been given, to receive the light of the world. 